And then she would keep doing it. And she would notice, I saw her face, she would notice my reaction on my face. And it seemed like she was feeling really bad about it. So I'd say, hey, mom, do you need anything? She'd go, huh? And then I would start getting tense inside. Like I would start reacting. And I did not like the way I felt in that moment. I did not like the experience of, of being reactive. I did not like seeing my mother's expression, her face. So I had to make a determination. Like, Colin, you're going to walk in that room now. You're going to ask your mom a question. She's going to respond in this way. How are you going to respond? And I determined that I'm going to walk in and take a breath when she responds in that way and not be reactive. Hey guys, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show, the show where I have the privilege of helping you understand your brain better in order to position yourself, your brands, and any message or idea better. Hi, I'm Timothy Maurice, a behavioral psychology author, and it's such a pleasure to share with you conversations with the world's leading authors, scientists, and a range of human behavior practitioners as I pursue simplifying what's happening inside yours and your stakeholders' heads. Today, you're going to meet one of the most unique thinkers I've come across. He has an incredible TEDx talk about the subject of this episode, which is embodiment, understanding how your body can alter your leadership and brain potential. His work is inspired by his global theater experience from Japan to Russia and many more countries. He teaches his work on embodiment around the world under the umbrella of both embodiment storytelling strategy, and design thinking. He weaves these disciplines together masterfully, and I'm excited to share our conversation. Meet Colin Skelton, the founder of Yes Culture. We opened the episode with our Inside the Brain feature, seven fun questions to help you understand his mind. Enjoy. All right, Colin, let's kick off with a fun segment I have called Inside the Brain. Can we go inside of your mind? Are you okay with that? <laughs> Let's do this. All right, here we go. Number one, coffee or tea? Ooh, do I have to choose one or the other? Yeah, you do, bro. You do. That's, that's the game. That's the rules. All right. Um, let's go with tea. All right. Cold shower or warm shower? Ooh. Cold shower. Japan or Russia? Japan. <laughs> mm, train or plane? Uh, nothing beats the view from a train. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Comedy or drama? I think I'm going to go with comedy there. Yeah. <laughs> Seafood, plants or meat? Mm, I think plants are plants. I'm going to go with plants there. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> and last one. I know this is going to be the toughest for you. Okay. The, the stage or audience? <laughs> That's a tricky one because I like being in both places. But I think at the end of the day, the stage is uh, the sweet spot. Before we jump into the conversation about his background, Colin shares a very personal story about how his work helped him navigate the final chapter of his mother's remarkable and challenging life 
while she was living with him. Sure. Uh, th- there's one story which I actually asked my mom permission to tell in public, and she, she was happy t- for me to do that. Um, so my mom lived with me for many years. She had emphysema and, um, and was struggling towards the end of her life. And it was a struggle for me as well and my family. It was a privilege to be able to look after her and have her in the home. But it was definitely for me a, a very mentally taxing. And I felt myself um, becoming more and more emotionally drained and, and struggling to manage the situation. So, for example, this is the story my mom said I could tell. <laughs> I would walk into a room and say, hey, mom, do you need anything? And she, for whatever reason, developed this habit of going, huh? Even though I knew that she had understood me clearly. And so I'd have to repeat myself. And initially that was just quite humorous, but then it just constantly happened. And I would then walk in the room and and articulate very clearly and loudly, mom, do you need anything? And she would go, huh? And I noticed myself getting irritated. My nervous system started frying. It was like a, like a fuse. And I noticed myself getting more and more reactive in that moment when I asked that question. And eventually I said to her, mom, I'm noticing you have this habit and you keep going, huh? And she said, oh, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm aware of that. And then she would keep doing it. And she would notice, I saw her face, she would notice my reaction on my face. And it seemed like she was feeling really bad about it. So I'd say, hey, mom, do you need anything? She'd go, huh? And then I would start getting tense inside, like I would start reacting. And I did not like the way I felt in that moment. I did not like the experience of, of being reactive. I did not like seeing my mother's expression on her face. So I had to make a determination. Like, Colin, you're going to walk in that room now. You're going to ask your mom a question. She's going to respond in this way. How are you going to respond? And I determined that I'm going to walk in and take a breath when she responds in that way and not be reactive. Acknowledge the emotion that's there, not be reactive, and find a different way to respond. And so I'd started training myself and walk in. She'd ask the question. And I would, the, I would smile. I would smile, allow for an expansion, not a contraction, tap into the humor that I saw, uh, that I experienced in the beginning when she started doing that, smile, and just sort of pour love towards her. And that became the practice. I mean, in this, in this situation, I had the gift of being able to repeat and practice and iterate and iterate. Um, but it made me aware that these reactive tendencies are ingrained, they're deep. They, they don't just happen to change overnight. We have to do the work. We have to first bring awareness to it and then start applying this awareness um, so that we create range in terms of the way we respond. Wow, I'm so grateful that Colin decided to share this extraordinary story. And you're about to hear when we explore his background, when we explore his work, how you can apply these insights to your personal and professional life and become a better leader, and just a better human being. Guys, lock in and enjoy this conversation. You just came back from New Zealand doing some wonderful work. Are you fully aligned to the time zone yet? How are you feeling? (laughs) Well, they say it takes uh, one day for every hour of, uh, of time change to recover. So I'm, uh, I'm almost back on track. (laughs) How many hours is it? It's a, it's a 10 hour time difference. 10 um, hours. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> awesome. Well, I really appreciate it. I'm really fascinated to share 
your background, your research, because you bring in, you're bringing a very, like recently I had a, recently I had an interview with a sculptor about her understanding of the brain. Like I love bringing people with different backgrounds and different vantages, mm. different lenses on this conversation and your background in theater in particular, I want to explore. So let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about when your relationship with understanding the power of the body, when you started to build your relationship, when you had an aha moment, take us back. Mm. Well, I've, I've always been very active uh, sport-wise and so always been using my body, which doesn't mean that I've been aware of my body subjectively. Um, and then I studied theater at university and, and left South Africa when I was about 24, went abroad and ended up in Norway. And had this kind of yes, no relationship with theater, never really committing and not quite being, not quite being sure whether I wanted to go down that path. It, something didn't quite fit for me. And I let that go for quite a few years. And things changed when I met uh, a Russian teacher, Yuri. And he has a, a, an association called the European Association for Theater Culture. And coming from the Russian, uh, a Russian lineage of Stanislavski, and the way the Russian people work in the Russian theater is very different to, to the West. The Russians see themselves as a bridge between the East and the West. So very philosophical, but also bringing the body into theater training where rehearsals are for showing each other what you've discovered on your own and oh, wow. what research you've done by yourselves behind closed doors and interrogating the text and kind of really coming to understand the nuances, the spaces in between the lines. And, and with that way of working was a lot of theater training, training of the body, the instrument, which is not unusual in theater. But I think that in the West, a lot of uh, focus has been placed on the cognitive approach to theater making, which almost is contradictory because really everything about theater is embodied and using the body. That's and fascinating. So, Let me just stop you quickly. That's mm -hmm. fascinating because I've never thought about just how much emphasis the West plays on the actual cognitive load that's happening in anything we do. Mm. Wow. I'm really looking forward to that. Okay. So I just wanted to stop you there because, you know, it, that was a moment for me. I was like, actually, it's like even Descartes is like, I think, therefore I am. You know, very little about the actual body. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's actually Descartes who he, he's a, he's a responsible for propagating this idea of separation of body and, and, brain yes okay and got it got it and elevating the brain and and the brain now being the kind of the, the kingpin at the top of the heap and the body is just a subservient master this idea yeah. that the brain is the body is a taxi for the brain and yes. and really the reality is actually the other way around the, the brain is yeah. the is the is the um the station the kind of the middleman <laughs> yeah exactly exactly all right so i i started working with uh, Yuri and a bunch of really creative and wonderful people from around Europe and around the world in various places and pockets in, in Europe. I had actually moved to Norway by then and I was based in Norway. And I started discovering new aspects of my awareness of my body that I hadn't before. And it, I really felt alive and my yes to theater started really awakening again. And I, I, I didn't understand what exactly was going on. I didn't understand those moments of, I don't know, call them 
call them clarity, um, sort of emotional clarity and expressive clarity. And as I continue to work this way, and bear in mind in Russia, they often will work on a piece for months and months, sometimes even years without needing to show it publicly. There's a lot of public funding. So their, their priorities are quite different. And then I became really interested in ritual and ritual within theater. And that was again spawned by this Russian methodology and way of working. And my travels around India and and then in Japan and, and Bali exposed me to a lot of ritualized ways of working, a lot of anthropological forms of theater and performance. And inherent in ritual is this very subjective, emotional, experiential, sometimes transcendental um, states of subjectivity, which are, are non-cognitive. And I just, I just felt really enlivened by this approach to theater and something that I hadn't encountered in my previous experiences of theater. And so I continued on this journey um, and was fortunate to spend a lot of time in some of these wonderful Asian places. And when I returned back to South Africa 15 years ago, I was really excited and determined to bring this work uh, and continue with this work. And I pivoted into the applied theater space. So bringing theater principles and processes into organizational contexts. Um, and it was really tough in the beginning. It took me a long time to start getting traction to, first of all, um, articulate why this work was necessary and important, uh, and, but also to, to bring it in a way that was accessible. Uh, you know, I, I understood the benefit for me and I understood how it felt subjectively and how, and I knew intuitively that this work was really important for for people who weren't used to moving their bodies or working in these ways and you know i remember sort of being immersed in a in a deep experiential process or a, a deep creative process in theater and doing all these strange wonderful weird things and suddenly i would imagine my father being a fly on the wall and looking down and thinking she's well, i don't know what's happening to my son now he's in a cult or what the hell's going on you know and then i would pop back into my into the experience and and just be so grateful for knowing that I, there was something inside me that was expanding and deepening and growing. And I didn't quite understand it, but over the years I've come to realize that these, these uh, unusual ways of moving and um, building new neural pathways in our, in our physical range um, affects our emotional range as well and affects the flexibility and the pliability and the ability to think in new novel ways as well. So so yeah. that's kind of been my journey is to is to bring this understanding, educate myself around it, and then be able to share this understanding not only cognitively but but through um, subjective experience, which is really where the meat is. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation is because one of the one of the things I'm starting to realize is that often disciplines and fields of inquiry, um, explosive insights take generations before they filter into mainstream society. So mm -hmm. if you look at what the Enlightenment era did with thrusting the sort of body as uh, the, the mind over the body, you know, that's been infiltrated into our deeper psyche that this is how the world works and so forth. And the idea that the body has an extraordinary role and can help even regulate what's happening in our psyche and our higher cognitive functions 
is something that's taking time, particularly because most of us work in a Western context. I would say mm-hmm. the vast majority of the people listening will find a lot of this very counterintuitive. And so I want to put it front and center in this episode because I really genuinely feel that the key leaders who need this most are often the ones that reject it. And so whether I'm working with a group of people in finance or actuarial scientists or people who lead in technical fields, I really want you to lock into this conversation because, you know, through our relationship and much of what I've learned in engaging you through the applied theater space, as much as even I'm interested, I have found it a struggle at times. And so I want everybody listening to hold certainty lightly as we go through. I want you to imagine in the one hand, yes, you've got your rigid ways of thinking. But in your other hand, I want you to imagine that you've got this new idea that the body has an extraordinary power and ability to help you navigate the world without you focusing so much on your cognitive functioning and so forth. So when you decided to focus on applied theater, let's talk a little bit about quickly what some of the resistance has been. You know, if you whether you're doing a webinar or you're doing in-person training, what do you find? Because what I've just shared now is I know there will be resistance. And mm-hmm. so what are some of the taboos, the myths, and so forth that you have to dispel going into? Hmm. I, I think one of the, firstly, it, it became apparent that I had to do the work and improve the way that I spoke about and, and made an understanding of this work accessible and make logical sense for how it could be beneficial. I see. But, but I think asking someone to move in a particular way needs to make sense to them. Why am I doing that? But also when you're asking someone to move and shift and to try and combine their thinking with physical movements, it's unusual, it's different, it's unfamiliar. And straight away that brings up a sense of discomfort, sometimes feeling a little bit unsafe. And I think people confuse that discomfort and that unfamiliarity with the potential for it to be of benefit. And straight away that cognitive kind of tendency will close it down and judge it and knock it. And straight away, you're in a state where I'm not receptive to this. So it's about building bridges, slowly building bridges in a way that's safe and accessible for certain people and and is not over- emotionally overwhelming. Again, it's about stretching that, get, taking people to the edge of their discomfort, so that, but not further into overwhelm, and then stretching that boundary. And it takes time. Um, it, you know, we, we spend our whole lives our neural system, our neurology is responding to the impulse and stimulus around us, our life experiences. And this, this uh, energy creates the form of our embodiment and eventually it becomes solidified. Your body is a, it wants to save energy. So it creates these neural pathways, default ways of, uh, and of being in the world and perceiving and seeing the world. And, and so our action and our perception of the world are fairly rigid and to create new neural pathways and new ways of seeing and perceiving the world, often we need to shift that embodiment, that rigidity that is formed in our body. And movement, we can't do it by thinking it. Um, you know, our sensation and emotion is often responsible for the way that we feel, uh, the way that we think in the world and the way that we act on the world. And yeah. unless we change that form, we're going to continue reacting in the same way as we've always done. 
And so taking that understanding of our body influences our brain and vice versa and seeing the connectivity between our body and our brain, the actual logical way to separate them. Uh, our brain is extended throughout our whole body. And so intentionally moving um, and applying a, a sort of a, a combination of our cognitive process with our physical physicality is a is one way and certainly the the start of how we can expand and develop new neural pathways you know it's 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 one thing to talk about all these things and i'm certainly not an expert in neuroscience i'm definitely looking to be more informed about it um but i do know that the the real fun happens when we start becoming a an active participant in our subjective experience not just talking about how moving our body is going to be fun, but actually start doing the work to slowly yeah. develop our sensory perception, uh, our channels of sensing and perceiving in the world. And I think people in theater do this instinctively. They don't, we don't talk about embodiments in theater because it's, well, yeah, of course, it's pretty just like a, a, you know, a musician. You don't say, you know, you, do you have to play a musical instrument to be a musician? It's, it's quite obvious. It's, that's the, uh, the instrument of, uh, of the art. Yeah, so, you know, let me, yeah. let me let me let me just say quickly that for anyone who's listening and going, okay, you know, this seems a bit technical. You know, I do know from having doing this podcast for many many years that you know podcasts are a space where you know you want to visually take people somewhere, right? So let's let's take a quick moment. And let's visually take people to where they probably experienced this, but they didn't realize it. So, for mm-hmm. example, you know, one of the things that I often do, if I'm going through a really stressful experience, and we're going to talk about some more practical strategies at the mm-hmm. end of the conversation, but I want to just insert here just how simple this can be. Because I know that Colin and I, I know you and I can really go on about you know, a lot of the, the science of this. So one of the things I do, for example, when I'm going through a really stressful experience is I just start smiling. I don't feel like smiling. The last thing in my, in my higher cognitive function is thinking about smiling. But I start smiling too because I know that when I alter my face, when I alter, uh, I, when I alter my expression, I send different chemicals, the cocktail of chemicals that are flowing in my head start to shift, right? What, what are a couple other simple things that people may have experienced from your understanding of this work that, that can help them link to this conversation? Mm. Well, if you look at some of the sort of cliches, gestures related to emotions, you know, sadness is often depicted by the head dropped or the shoulders lowered. And, yes. and in fact, if you do that, so drop your head, lower your shoulders, contract yourself, it influences your internal emotional state. Yes. And, and, and so when you're feeling sad, your body naturally reflects that. And so just like you smiling shifts an internal state, you can affect your emotional state by, you know, intentionally opening up your body, bringing some yeah. expansion, lifting your head, opening your shoulders and, and actually doing that, opening your hands, your arms wide out. It will actually hold that state. It'll affect your internal emotional um, posture. Eddie Cummings did a a great uh, TED talk on this with how power poses can influence the way that you, you show up your, your uh, resonance, I guess, 
in a, in any situation or any context, any conversation. So we can Good. affect our emotional state by physically moving our bodies. Got um, it. All right. I, I wanted to simplify that and give a really simple context as we go through this conversation, because what I know for sure is that this is going to be super helpful. And guys, please share this episode with your teams. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of team building exercises recently because the world is kind of coming back together offline, more in-person exercises. And I've been trying to incorporate a lot more of this physical dynamics to our, you know, to our actual in-person experiences, Colin. And I'm, probably, I'm sure you're seeing this as well, is that we, mm. now that we're coming back together, this is a great time to be having this conversation, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So I interrupted you a bit. <laughs> and <laughs> you, were, you were sharing a little bit about, you know, the dynamics around how you've been helping people sort of navigate this. Uh, let's, let's kind of go one step back, if you don't mind, quickly. So I want to talk a little bit about specifically your journey in and around theater, okay? Because your tools and techniques around sharing applied theater, for me, have been what's really, really enriching from, you know, what I've observed of your work. Have you ever been experiencing a theater moment um, or theater exercise where you've been moving your body and experienced a profound shift in your your own sort of awareness and enlightenment or anything that you'd like to share, any moments, any stories mm. that you have along your journey? What comes to mind is, uh, is working in an um, ensemble ethic type of theater making where we work with, uh, with other performers. And in the training process, we might uh, be doing what we call something like synchronized walking, where we walk at different paces without talking, and we have to move from one pace to the next pace together and then back down to zero. Oh, and wow. we, ha- we have to just, you know, intuit, sense into self and then sense into where everyone else is. And the intention is to just shift from one place to the, one pace to the next without one particular person leading it or following. We all try and move at the same time. And this is an exercise I remember doing over and over and over again. And every now and again, there's this magical moment that happens where everyone just shifts at exactly the same time. And we all feel it. All the faces light up. Wow, where did that come from? It's kind of like this, this connected uh, connectivity that happens uh, without thinking or talking. Um, and, and I, you know, for lack of a better word, it's about energy. It's about resonance. It's about, um, you know, tapping into something that we share on a below conscious level. And I think building sensitivity, learning to sense into our, through the channels of, uh, of our senses, which we can talk about as well, I think is useful. Um, and, and learning to tap into how our senses and our emotions relate and being able to be conscious in terms of the way we respond to the stimulus around us, both internally and externally. Instead of just being reactive, we learn to be more responsive by deepening that, that uh, ability to sense. Yeah, um, which we call our embodied awareness, and Got so in, in theatre we learn to be more to develop our embodied awareness so that we can not only have an organic performance um, every time we we stand on stage, so the performance is different every time, but then we can also respond to the audience so that the audience's uh, emotional state, how they show up, influences the performance, 
And when those little moments click and they happen, they are really beautiful and magical. And it just feels, you know, I'm left feeling so grateful to be, to be in this kind of work. And I think we can apply these moments can be, a, can be experienced in organizational context as well. Why not? Um, and, and so I do think, though, that if we just keep doing our work in the same way we've always done it and keep thinking with our heads primarily and disregarding our bodies and just standing still and being stationary and not incorporating movement in our bodies and activating um, all these different uh, hormones and neurotransmitters by, by, by shifting and moving different ways, um, I think we're losing out an opportunity to expand our thinking. Yeah. If you can imagine like, you know, whether you're presenting to the board, whether you're presenting to your team, whether you're just engaging your team on a team exercise, whatever it is, having a better relationship with your mind body dynamic is very, very critical. This is a whole field of study that you really spent a bit of time. Tell us a little bit about your inquiry into this field of study, some of the interesting work you've read, some of the a little bit mm. about the journey you've been on with this. The the term is the, the field of study is somatics. Uh, yes, somatics uh, embodiment. You know, em- embodiment is about um, your felt sense of self. Um, so the a subjective experience of self, as opposed to an objective experience of this is my body, my body is sore. Um, shifting that to I am my body and I'm experiencing pain. And, and that's a, it's a subtle but very profound difference in the way that most people relate to their bodies. And so embodiment is, this, is developing and growing sensitivity and the ability to sense into um, our body, a sense into the emotions that we hold, being able to, we normally have a very impoverished vocabulary for our embodiment. So if we ask someone, how do you feel? They will typically go, well, I feel fine or I feel okay. But that doesn't really allow us to build distinction. And so the first, the first place to start in building embodied awareness is to offer distinction. So how do you feel? Well, I feel a, a tightness in, in, my, in my chest and it, it kind of feels like anger or, or anxiety. And just by naming it, there's this expression, name it to tame it. When we name it and we identify it, that reactive tendency to, to react and act on anger or a certain emotion um, dissipates. And so that we start to um, widen the gap between um, stimulus and response. So we become more responsive and less reactive. But also the work of embodiment is about building awareness. Um, first, we need to build awareness into that, those moments of sensation, both our exteroception, which is our sight, sound, hearing, taste, touch, interoception, which is our ability to sense into our, uh, our bodily sensations, which are much more subtle, um, you know, and then our proprioception, which is our movement, our sense of self in time and space. And the body is primed to pay attention externally. So internal awareness happens much more slowly and quietly. So with an anatomical bias towards exteroception, our external senses, plus a cultural bias to favor intellect, 
Um, and then the individual's um, psychobiological armory, which is the way that we, we are programmed neurologically as we grow in our lives. With these three combinations, we, we have people ever are unable to feel themselves properly. Difficult to kind of identify sensation and feeling in the body. So this is where the first step is to offer distinctions in sensation. And this is called embodied awareness. And so if we can build our embodied awareness to a level of below conscious perception, then we actually start to take control over the way that we respond to situations as opposed to just going on the default and we react every single time. I can say, oh, the next time I'm in this situation, I don't want to react. I don't want to react to, to that person in my team who says something in an irritating way, or I don't want to be reactive and overstressed in a certain situation. And then what happens is that situation repeats itself and we go back into reactive mode. Why are we not teaching this in school? You know, this seems to me almost elementary that having a child as a teenager understand that their responses, their excessive responses could be dangerous to who they become. Like you could make mistakes based on the inability to understand what's happening in your body that can alter your life forever. A leader can respond to a team. Like there's a great poem by Ben Okri that speaks about living beyond words. And he says, all art inspires to like stillness, a position mm-hmm. of silence. And it seems to me, whether we explore this type of poetry or these ancient philosophies about the body and your work, this should be taught in school. Why is this not taught at an early age? Why are we bringing this up now and sharing mm. it with leaders only? I think it's a great question. I mean, I, I think uh, I think it is being taught in some schools, in some paradigms. I think the question is about why it's not being taught in mainstream. Um, I mean, I, I don't know the full answer, but I think one of the reasons is that teachers and the adults that are doing the teaching um, don't work this way for themselves. This is not a, an, an area of awareness that they've developed and therefore don't see the value in it, perhaps. Um, I, I remember during lockdown, um, my daughter, who's 14, um, like many other kids, had to go online and, and do schooling. And what I noticed was for a period of four or five months is is that they would be sitting for two, three hours at a time, have a 20-minute break, and then sit for another two or three hours. And weren't allowed to get up from their seat and move around in between classes. And in a normal school, in a normal uh, situation, they would be getting up from their seats, moving to the next class, sitting down again, constantly moving their bodies. And I noticed my daughter becoming really, really drained and struggling. And to the point where I was concerned, and I, and I almost approached the school and wanted to, you know, be that parent and, and make a suggestion for some kind of intervention. Uh, and, you know, given that teachers would, I believe everyone was doing their best, but I really noticed the shift. My daughter was struggling, not moving around. It was impacting her emotionally. Um, and that's not okay. And I think yeah. what you're suggesting is that, that we can really support our children by bringing and incorporating movement much more into their into their learning process. In fact, movement helps both children and adults to 
to learn better, to retain memory. It brings us more clarity of perception. Um, and yeah, I, I do think, I love the fact that you spent so much time understanding how to translate this in a very simple way. I, I appreciate the fact that you have, you're offering really simple tools. And I, I want to shift a bit to, I want to go inside of a leadership environment. You know, I want to, whether you're a manager or whoever you are, you know, firstly, I'd love for you to invite Colin. So wherever you've done work around the world, you know, mm-hmm. Colin and I work on projects together. Um, so whether you invite both of us or him alone, I really love for you and I'll share his details, contact details at the end. But I'd like for you to be thinking about ways and also share, he's got a wonderful TED talk on, on you know, you know, this subject. And I will share that link as well. But I want you to, let's share maybe two or three insights that people uh, can start, whether it's a perception change in insight or actual practical tool, that's something they can do with their actual body over mm-hmm. the next 24 hours. Let's go there real quick. You, what are some of your thoughts about how they can begin incorporating this and having a better relationship with their body. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think to start off, uh, this work does take time uh, and requires showing up, um, but it's quite simple. So to start by, by centering. So centering is a, is a technique and a way of managing stress and regulating our emotions so that we can continue along our day and, um, and do the work without being charged. You know, remember the when we become stressed, our sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight response, activates, and we stay in a stress, almost a near a near um, crisis, neurologically speaking, near crisis situation. Unless we regulate and, and activate our parasympathetic nervous system again, which is our rest and digest, and so every single day we can, um, in any moment, is an opportunity just to to center. So, for example. There's a there's a, a centering technique called ABC awareness balance and and core. So just sitting wherever you are, bring awareness to sensation, awareness to the sensation of your feet on the ground, awareness to sensation of your bottom on your chair, um, the sensation of your clothes on your skin, and just bring your breath in. Breath again is a very very important and key kind of aspect in, in embodied awareness and awareness in many practices around the world. So learning how to breathe, but then incorporating your breath into the awareness of sensation, that's awareness. And then balance, bringing in a, awareness to the balance in your body, maybe just shifting your body from side to side, backwards and forwards while you're sitting and coming back to center place, keeping your breath slow, regulated. And then uh, core, are you relaxed in your core from your forehead? Bring awareness down your forehead to your mouth. Is your jaw relaxed? Your chest, are you relaxed? In your stomach, are you relaxed? And then also, it's really useful to keep your awareness internally focused, but actually we operate in a social world. So if you can start then also becoming aware of what's around you, the sensations that you hear, you can have your eyes open, what you see, and then become aware of your emotions as well. Just Tap into where are the emotions. 
So those three things will start building your embodied awareness. And you can do that for 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And so one suggestion is to set your alarm for every hour during the day. Because the, the real challenge is remembering to do it. Set your alarm yeah. for every hour. When the hour happens, when the alarm goes off, just center. Do something like a centering exercise for 30 seconds and then go back to your work. And that way you start priming and, and retraining your nervous system to, to become more aware. You start training at a muscle of awareness. So that's a really good start. Um, and then I think yeah. Yeah, something simple like every hour, set the alarm again. When the alarm goes off for every 45 minutes, stand up, get off your chair, move around. Take your work with you. Take your book with you. Walk, move around, do something different with your body. Kind of go get some sun. Um, just, just activate your body so that there's blood flowing to your brain. There's blood flowing to your system. So that you're shifting and changing the way that you always do your work, that you now suddenly become a bit more activated. And so these are two simple ways to start doing things differently and activating um, a more connectivity between your embodied awareness and your conceptual awareness. Thanks so much, Colin, for your extraordinary dedication to this fascinating work. And thank you for listening. And do make sure you share this episode with someone you care about. Until next time.